Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad coming to you this week from Chicago. Yeah, and so it's we're up to episode lucky 13. We have a few things to talk about, certainly Chicago and then some fuel economy uh I guess postulation. Uh Yeah. Yeah, we'll say postulation because I can't come up with a better word. Um, uh, more thoughts about what happens if we abolish the EPA and people who are uh, really enthusiastic about that. Um, you know, again, from Chicago, the sights and sounds, really, because it's Chicago. So there's not a whole lot going on at the show. It's It's got some stuff, but not a whole lot. And then a uh, little VW news. and uh, But, you know, backing off to first things first. You're in Chicago, Sam. What did you drive there? Uh, actually, I drove the train. No, I, I took the took the train. Uh, <laughs> took the train from uh, Ann Arbor to uh, Chicago, which is, uh, especially this time of year, is actually probably the best way to get here. Certainly, the most reliable way to get here. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, in early February, uh, if you're driving from uh, from Michigan uh, to Illinois. Uh, in West Michigan, you can get hit with some pretty severe snow squalls and whiteouts, so it can it can get pretty nasty. Uh, so I left the car that I've been driving for the last few days uh, in the garage and uh, took the train. And that car is the Volvo S90 T6 Inscription. Yeah, and the train is probably something like Hyundai or Bombardier or something like that. Uh, yeah, actually, I think it, it's it's probably <laughs> older than than that. Who knows who made it? I mean, you know, it's an Amtrak train. Uh, and it's not an Acela, so uh, it's it's pretty old. But you know that that said, it's it's still you know compared to flying, especially on short hops like this. Oh, it's um, nice. There's so much room. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's barely you know it's barely an hour flight from Detroit to Chicago. But when and it's from Ann Arbor, it's uh, just over a four hour train ride. But when you factor in, you know, from my house to to Metro Airport is about twenty minutes. Uh, park the car by the time you get to the terminal, go through security, uh, go through all the nonsense of boarding uh, and then reverse the process at the other end and get from O'Hare into downtown Chicago. You're looking at a minimum of four hours anyway. And that's assuming your flights don't get delayed, uh, you know, again, by you know winter weather, which uh, tends to hit Chicago this time of year. So, you know, it's it's a taking the trains, a, a good, relaxing way to do it. You got lots of room to spread out and uh, it's relatively inexpensive expensive uh they get powered all the seats they got wi-fi uh so yeah it's it's the it's the way to do it so while we are a car podcast we we clearly have some other interests in, in in uh you know to public not not even public transport but just other uh, other forms of transport yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know trains are super cool yeah i mean you know it's 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 no uh shinkansen but uh you know it'll it'll do 
<laughs> uh, but it's definitely not as luxurious as the S90 T6, especially the inscription. So what do you think of that car? Um, you know, I, I like it a lot. Um, you know, the T6 uh, is the top end of the uh, conventional powertrain versions in the uh, the S90, at least for the North American market. So that means it's a two liter four cylinder engine with both a turbocharger and a supercharger. Um, you know, it's a it's a strong engine. You know, it's 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 the same powertrain and this is essentially the same uh, platform architecture that's in the XC90. Uh, and I guess, you know, this will also be getting, since it's uh, Volvo's scalable platform architecture, it will be getting scaled down for the new 60 series, the new S60 sedans and V60s and XC60s. Um, but the, the, um, the S90, you know, is a very attractive looking car, um, you know, lovely interior, you know, some really nice, uh, wood trim and and lots of leather and unlike the um, the plug-in hybrid XC90 that I drove uh, a couple of months ago, uh, you know this one has a, a conventional transmission shifter, you know conventional Prindle uh, that you shift back and forth. It's a mechanical linkage, um, you know, so it's you always know exactly which which gear you're selecting. You know, whereas there was tended to be some uncertainty with the the electronic uh, switch system in the, uh, the hybrid. Yeah. I don't, when they start to mess with the shifters, I just don't, I don't like it. And especially for Volvo too, cause they've had such flawless, carefully studied ergonomics for so many years that it, it, it just flummoxes me that, that they would have, uh, they would make a change like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, um, aside from that, you know, a lot of the rest of it, you know, having having the car style ride height um, uh, aside from that, though, you know, a lot of the rest of the experience is very much like the XC90. Um, you have the same uh, census infotainment system, which is an 11 inch portrait format uh, touchscreen setup. Um, and it's kind of terrible. Yeah, it's it's not the best system on the market. You know, the, <laughs> the you know you've got three three screens that you can swipe back and forth between. Um, a lot of the controls are buried in the the UI, and you know it's not it's not always entirely clear. You know where the things that you want are. Um, you know, in the in the middle of the three, the central of the three screens. Uh, if you have uh, an Android or Apple uh, smartphone. Uh, and plug it in, you can, you'll get, uh, CarPlay or Android auto, uh, displays showing up in the lower half of the screen. So that, that part works well enough. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a system that needs some rethink as far as the overall, uh, user interface and user experience. It's also not, not the most responsive system. Yeah. And so I started off with my first experience with that system going, well, it's it's kind of neat. Uh, I do like the that it's, it's actually a large enough screen that they can give some of the controls some some real estate around them. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit easier to hit your target. Uh, but the more and more I use it, the less and less I like it. So I'm less willing to to give them a pass on that, especially for a brand that's all about safety. And when you get an interface that's so distracting, it it really it sort of goes completely counter to what they're they're preaching um the other question i had is so my experience with the scalable product architecture is that it it certainly looks beautiful inside and out it's it's well executed well assembled um but 
it's kind of let down by its its ride and handling balance. I, f I found it to be nowhere near as supple as I had expected it to be, even with the air suspension. And I don't know if that's because it's lacking chassis rigidity or, or they're just Volvo's just not as good at tuning suspensions as Audi and BMW. Uh, I think I think it's probably more of the latter. I think they just um, need a little bit more. Uh, time and, and care with the uh, the chassis dynamics, uh, you know, the tuning of the chassis dynamics, because I think it's basically a pretty solid architecture. Uh, you know, I, it certainly doesn't feel like it has any flex, and I, I think it's just a matter of tuning, you know, the spring rates and the damping, um, and you know, maybe making some adjustments in the a little bit, some slight adjustments in the geometry to get the right feel in there. Um, you're right; it's not. It's not as supple as you might expect from a Volvo. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's certainly no worse, uh, you know, in terms of its ride quality than than most of its competitors in the current premium segment. Uh, you know, in fact, it's probably probably a little more supple than, you know, recent Jaguars that I've driven. So, um, you know, and those were those were a brand that was always known for providing a um you know, at least in the in the old days, providing a, a mix of uh, supple ride and and good handling. Um, you know, certainly in the last decade or so, they have they have gone more towards the German route of a more uh, more solid ride feel. Um, yeah. And I think you know, Volvo has kind of gone in that same direction, trying to emulate uh, what the German brands do. Um, perhaps you know, maybe with not quite as much finesse as the as the Germans. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's one of those things where, you know, when they've got it, you know, because it has that snubbed ride quality that's very, very well controlled, but it's not harsh. And I, in the last couple of XC90s I've driven, it's it's been harsh and not as snubbed as I want it to be. And, you know, some of it's the fact that it's it's an SUV um, on that architecture with giant wheels and, you know, just there's a lot of mass moving around, even, you know no matter how much aluminum they put in the arms and stuff. So I'm very curious to drive the sedan. I've only actually like walked by one at this point and looked at it for a little while. And it's, it's a beautiful car and yeah, it must well, be great on the and, highway. Yeah. And um, you know, what's particularly impressive, you know, I think, you know, what's actually even better than the S 90 to my eyes is the V 90, uh, you know, which they showed, uh, uh, see, they showed it at the Detroit show last month. I think they actually, first showed it uh, perhaps at the uh, at the LA Auto Show I think it was in LA uh but you know it's you know basically imagine you know you just stretch that roof line back you know into a classic Volvo station wagon style um you know and it's a it's a big uh big luxurious station wagon you know and I think that would that would be the one I would choose probably out of all three of the the current 90 series models I would I would certainly take the V90 over the XC. Yeah, well, and that's where Volvo's mojo is. You know, it's funny they they kind of ran away from from wagons for a while. They they went pretty hard at the SUVs. Um, and well, they're, they're, fo they're following back. the market. Yeah, I I know, but I think that they've discovered too that with this the the new SPA cars and and really with Geely ownership since sort of this new generation of of vehicles from Volvo they're kind of finding their feet again and saying you know what we have something that not everybody else has yeah we're a little niche but we're we're unique enough that we can we can lead with style and we can burnish our our reputation our brand and 
you know, that's going to carry a lot of cachet for our product. And so I can, I can see that shift and, and um, you know, they're, they're trading on a, a reputation of safety and that perception of being a little different, you know, it's, uh, and they don't have to compete with Saab anymore, either, yeah. you know, directly head on. So they are like the one Swedish car. So the, you still get that European flavor. Um, you get that Scandinavian style, which is certainly something that, that you can sink your teeth into as a designer. Um, and so they, they really do. They stand out a lot more than they had in the, in the last, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, uh, Volvo never really had the, um, the quirkiness of Saab, you know, it didn't have, you know, weird little things like the, uh, the, the key in the center console or, yeah. or other oddball, um, configurations. No, they broke just, they, they broke as often, but that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll let, so as, as the, as the, as the owner of several, uh, or former owner of several Volvos, I'll, I'll let you attest to that. Yeah. The old, old ones are great. Um, the newer ones, I mean, I'm still, I, I remain enthusiastic, but they're, they're a new car, you know, and, and new cars are different now. They're, they're a lot more, they're not for tinkerers, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and that's every new car. That's not just Volvo. So they're, they're not, they're not unique in that. So what, um, what about you? What have, what have you got this week? I just stepped out of a Nissan Titan Platinum Reserve. Uh, which, which one did you have? The XD, the diesel? No, I didn't have the XD. So this is just the straight up uh, Titan, the half ton. Okay. Um, and it's it's been pretty well received. You know, it's Truck Trends pickup of the year. Uh, it was a North American Truck of the Year finalist. And I can see why, um, at least in Platinum Reserve trim, which, by the way, sounds like cheap, <laughs> cheap whiskey. Um, <laughs> it's it's really nicely decked out because this is the top of the line Titan. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's comfortable. It's quiet. It's got uh, all the goodies in there. Yeah. And it, it looks good. You know, it certainly looks like they borrowed a lot from the F-150. But I mean, if you're going to borrow, you might as well borrow from one of the best sellers. Mm-hmm. So I can't really fault them for that. Um, and it, so, this, and, it's, you know, there's habit. there's only so much you can do with a pickup truck. Yeah, that's you know, that's for sure. You're, you're either going to, you know, end up with something that looks, you know, more or less like an F-150 um, or, you know, at the opposite end, you know, like a Ram. Yeah. And, and so I think they pull it off. You know, they look it looks unique. It's not as ugly as the the uh, Tundra. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, this is the one that Nissan plans to sell the most of. And it it does pretty well in the heart of Truckville in that respect. You know, it feels well planted and strong. Um, you know, like the frame has a pretty rigid disposition. It's not trembling and flexing a lot. It actually uh, feels a little bit more, you know, like it has a stiffer backbone than, than even, you know, I'm going to, I'm just, as we go here, I'll just use the F-150 as my benchmark. Uh, I liked its rigidity, the, just the solid feel mm-hmm. better than the last F-Series I was in. Um, I love the Endurance V8. Um, they, it's an evolution of the VK56. It probably still is just the VK56 in, in Nissan terminology. Um so that's, that's a 5.6 liter V8. It makes 390 horsepower, I think 394 pound feet of torque. Uh, it sounds so good. It is. A, it is a nice <laughs> engine. Um, I dream of uh, like a Nissan Z or an Infiniti G37 coupe <laughs> with this engine. I mean, that would just be 
Perfect. It's good in the truck. I mean, it's certainly powerful. It's definitely not fuel efficient. Um, <laughs> it's like I got about 15.2 miles per gallon uh, with it um, in, let's say I was doing about 70% highway with it. So as a commuter truck, it's got great power. It doesn't really have any issue other than the, you have to expect that the fuel economy is going to be kind of low. And that's not that's not terrible fuel economy. Uh, it's rated like 15, 21. If you can edge it towards 21 with this powertrain, you're you're doing okay. Um, you know, the seven-speed auto is pretty well programmed. I like that it it actively downshifts. Like when you come down a ramp and stuff, you can hear it and feel it drop down a gear. So it's always kind of at the ready. Like somebody who actually knew how vehicles should drive <laughs> actually programmed all this stuff. Um, so I, I like the Titan a lot. I don't know if you've had a chance to, to be in it or around it that much. Yeah, I had, uh, I had the, uh, Titan XD, uh, diesel, uh, also on okay. platinum reserve, uh, back last September or so. Uh, and then last, last summer, uh, early August, I was out in California, uh, for a Nissan, uh, truck drive event and they had, um, they updated Pathfinder, uh, the Armada SUV and, uh, also, uh, a couple of different um, Titan variants. Uh, and I think that was the first time they had the half ton uh, yeah. V8 to drive. Uh, so I, I get to drive a bit, basically the same one that you did. And yeah, I was really impressed with the driving dynamics, the ride quality of that truck. Uh, you know, it was very much, you know, it was as good as, as any of the, the three domestic brands, uh, which all, you know, all have gotten really good in the last, you know, five or 10 years uh, compared to where they were, you know, even, you know, as, as recently as the early 2000s, um, you know, they, they, they have really good ride quality. They don't bounce around on uneven or rough roads anymore. You know, they, they, they stay controlled, you know, when you're driving them around without a load in the bed, you know, it used to be that, you know, you hit a hit the slightest bump, you know, if you weren't going directly in a straight line and, you know, they would go skittering sideways and they don't do that anymore. And, and the Titan uh, does just as good a job, I think, with that as the uh, the um, domestics, you know, which really makes the, the Tundra uh, stand out by, you know, by comparison, by, you know, how not good it is. Oh, yeah, the Tundra is a dynamic mess. And I, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I like the t the Tundra is certainly not a bad truck choice in that and like if you need a truck and you go buy a tundra to do truck work there's no shame in that it will do oh, it well i don't know i mean there, you know there's there's you got five full-size truck brands to choose from and yeah. i think four of them are you know so far ahead of where the tundra is that you know i, I wouldn't even consider a tundra at this point i mean i don't think you're going to get a great deal on a tundra and i also don't think you're going to get a great deal on a, a titan you know I mean, the tundra for sure because it's a a toyota truck and they just hold on to their value for some silly reason um but you know yeah i mean I've, you know a tundra is certainly going to be reliable you know yeah. it being it being a toyota but um you know in so many other respects it's just not not up to par anymore especially now That's that true. the titan has has largely caught up to the the domestic competitors yeah i, I mean i was really impressed with how well behaved the titan is um although so part of my Critique here. I mean, I feel like it's a bit disingenuous to send the Platinum Reserve out into the fleet because uh, we're not really getting 
a true picture of how most of them are going to be equipped. You know, it's it's easy to be taken in by how nice this truck is. It's it's luxurious. Well, I, actually, you'd you'd be surprised. Um, I, I suspect. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll have to check. Uh, I'm going to be at a, a roundtable session with Fred Diaz, who's uh, head of uh, Nissan Trucks uh, tomorrow. Stole from Ram. Yeah, <laughs> he's. I mean, he's done great work. And, I really do. I, this is a very competitive truck. Yeah, and you know, I'll I'll check with him. You know, see if he's willing to share any information on on what percentage you know of the high end trims. But certainly, you know, if you look at the um, at the um, you know Ford, GM, and, and Ram. Um, you know, they sell an extraordinarily high percentage of these premium trim levels. Like last year here at the Chicago show, Mark Lenev, the uh, head of marketing for Ford, uh, did, did a keynote at the, the breakfast here. And, you know, he talked about the fact that, you know, fully one third of F-Series trucks are the premium trim levels, the Platinum, the Limited, the uh, Lariat and the Raptor. Um, you know, and those, you know, those high end trim levels also have really high margins. I mean, when you look at the, the numbers and, you know, we'll, we'll get to this in, in a bit when we get into our top, our fuel economy topic. But, you know, when you, you look at the, the, you know, the profit numbers, you know, for um, the domestic brands, you know, the bulk of that profit, you know, the, the cash cows are these these high-end trucks because they sell a lot of those trucks and every one of those has huge margins on them. You know, you're talking anywhere on some of these premium trucks, you're talking probably as much as $20,000 a truck uh, in in pure profit. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, like, the basic truck costs what the basic truck costs and everything else is kind of like an incremental. As nice as it is, you know, the $2,000 package with the Sony audio system doesn't cost Ford anywhere near that right. put in there you know like exactly it uh the, yeah so the profit i i can see that um i just feel like it's you know we get a, a sense of of what the premium trim is not is like and you know but it's it's really but uh, even in, even in the, the lower end trims the base trims you know the titan is still surprisingly good you know i, I did have a chance um last summer to drive you know some of the the non-platinum reserve trim levels, and you know, it it's still a you know really solid truck. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, and they're you know they're 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 just at the point now. You know, and they started rolling out. You know, the the original uh, XD with the diesel engine was the first one to hit the market in late 2015, and you know, right about now they're they're basically finishing up the lineup, the type the new Titan lineup. Uh, in the, in the coming weeks or so, or maybe in another month or two, they'll be um, putting on sale uh, even a single cab work truck version, you know, for, you know, the type that appeals to contractors and, you know, utilities and so on, you know, that they end up putting, you know, racks or boxes on the back with all the tools and equipment. Um, you know, so these are the, these are the commercial fleet trucks. Yeah. Uh, so and they're, they're hitting every, every segment of the full size truck market. And that, yeah, and it's definitely a full size truck, you know, that that low end one that's, you know, like the Titan S or whatever, that's probably going to have a version of the VQ V6. Um, everything I found is said, uh, you know, V6 to be announced soon. Um, but, you know, it, the things I like about it are that it, it did feel much nicer than the F-Series trucks I've been in, even the, the like the Lariat trim. You know, I look around an F-Series and it feels like loose fit and just not quite as well screwed together as the Titan. I felt like it was really well assembled. It's huge. 
as a crew cab, you know, it feels like it's three quarters of, of, um, you know, an armada. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it actually felt very familiar to like the QX 80. Um, and I, I think that's probably because there's a lot of similarity there or a lot of lessons they learned. Um, I'm not sure if this is based on the patrol frame, like, like no, it's, it's not, it's, um, uh, the, uh, They've actually got uh, two uh, two different two unique platforms uh, for the the Titans the the current generation Titans so the XDs which are that's its you know, own right that's yeah its well it's it's actually it's actually based on the uh, NV thirty five hundred platform okay um, so it it shares it shares its frame I think with the NV thirty five hundred vans so the heavy duty vans uh, and then the half ton um, is. Uh, a, a lighter duty variant of that. So it's, it's actually a unique parts. Um, and there's, there's, there's quite a few, uh, a lot of the, the platform is actually different, even though the trucks look the same. So the, the upper body is the same underneath They're They're actually quite different. This is the magic you can do with, uh, body on frame vehicles. As long as the body mounts are there, yeah. <laughs> you can put them, you know, um, and, and it's drill it, the it, bolt it, holes in the right spot and you're good to go. Yeah, I mean, Nissan, for, for whatever it's worth, they know how to make a truck that's pleasing. Um, I mean, I don't know what like they're like to own. I know that the, you know, the Titan's been around a while now, and the, the first one's had some teething pains. But overall, you know, they're, they're a solid player. I'm impressed with this, this truck. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like the best value compared to some of the domestics. It's, the Titan S is going to start at like 29 and a half. And then you know, that's that's about twenty five hundred more than than a comparable F series, um, and it, the the price ratchets up there quick. This was about a fifty five thousand dollar truck. Um, I didn't have a Monroney in it, but like that is like when we talked about the the F series trim levels, like that's King Rancher Platinum territory. So that, that's a lot of dough for a half ton that probably uh, payload wise is a little bit behind. Um, you know, the, the payload. Yeah, is, that's, think, that is the one area where they're, they're lagging a little bit is in payload yeah. towing. And yeah. And towing too. I think it, well, part of it though, is like, it's like a thousand pounds heavier than, than, uh, some of its competitors, uh, depending on sort of how it's equipped again. Um, you know, but like a, a Titan S, uh, compared with like a Ram tradesman, you know, that it's, it's close to eight or 900 pounds heavier. Yeah. Uh, so that that really does affect your toy and your payload. That certainly does. Um, but maybe, you know, the weight is maybe what uh, feels good about it. It's uh, And the, the only other real criticism I had was like, it's got that Nissan infotainment system that just feels feels old and it washes out in the sunlight. And just, you know, I, I feel that that's probably an easy upgrade for them to make as they go. Yeah, that's that's something I'm sure, you know, we'll see a running change in the next year or two. Um, uh, Hopefully, hopefully that's something that Nissan will address you know, across their lineup over the next year or two. I'm sure Nissan hopes it's something Nissan will address. <laughs> um, but enough about us. Uh, we had some topics. Uh, we, we, you know, we can we can dive in. We can talk about uh, fuel economy impact of the uh, regulatory executive order, which basically wants to roll back. Um, you wrote a piece for for Navigate about this, um, where they, they kind of want to roll back some of the uh, federal regulations on corporate average fuel economy. Well, yeah. So um, what I did, you know, this is for our blog, uh, the company that I work for, Navigant Research. You know, my day job is I'm an analyst there, you know, and I, I, I cover the uh, the auto industry. 
uh, you know, I look at uh, advanced transportation technologies and um, powertrains and and uh, connected vehicles and those sorts of things. And uh, so, uh, you know, we have a, a blog that all you know, our analyst team all contributes to. And I, I wrote a post last week um, about that came right after uh, the president uh, signed the executive order on regulations. And the, this executive order basically stated that um, no, no federal agencies can, can impose any new regulations unless they um, eliminate two existing regulations. Which sounds a whole lot easier than it's going to actually be. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, effectively, you know, what that's going to mean is that, you know, rather, you're just not going to see any new regulations for a while. Um, you know, so part of that is that, you know, the the vehicle to vehicle communications mandate is probably going to be dead in the water. Um, you know, but, you know, that that's a, a separate one. This one that I wrote was looking at uh, fuel economy the, from the perspective of fuel economy. Now, part of that executive order uh, was it, it um, you know, anything that's legally mandated by Congress um, is exempted from that, you know, because, you know, the the way executive orders work, um, you know, the basically the the president can um, interpret, you know, or have, has some leeway in interpreting the laws or interpreting how how the laws are uh, imposed. But, you know, if there's something specific in in the legislation that's passed by Congress, you know, uh, you can't overrule that. So um, the fuel economy regulations, the corporate average fuel economy regulations actually came out of the 2007 um, Energy Independence Act, which was passed uh, under uh, George W. Bush's administration, signed into law by 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 President Bush. And that um, that law, you know, was the one that said, you know, by 2020, uh, car makers need to get to 35 miles per gallon uh, fuel economy. Uh, so that's or get to at least 35 miles per gallon. So from that, um, NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which oversees the corporate average fuel economy um, enforcement and EPA, which oversees emissions, basically use that as the starting point. And so the 54.5 mile per gallon target that they ultimately imposed for 2025 was built off of that. You know, they, they, they used the 35 miles per gallon as the starting point, uh, did the uh, various cost benefit analysis that they're required to do um, and the technical analysis and, and then came up with the 54.5 mile per gallon standard in 2025. So essentially um, the, with the executive order, the only thing, Unless Congress actually repeals that part of the law, uh, they can uh, what uh, what EPA and and or NHTSA and NHTSA can do is they can roll back um, something, you know, the the standard from that 54.5 mile per gallon down to 35. Um, And the other thing that they could do is change the enforcement, change the penalties for missing the targets. Well, they were, you know, regardless of who's president at this point, you know, that's that's really aggressive going from 35 to almost 55 in five years. Uh, am I reading that correctly? They were going to have to go from corporate average well, they, economy of they 35. Were, they, were, to, they would actually be going, uh, you know, because the starting point for all of this, you know, from 2011 
uh, was like 24 miles per gallon. Right. And so basically they were going up at a pace of about 4% a year. So that's. But then, oh, is this, is that's how they got from, because right. If they have to hit 35 miles per gallon corporate average fuel economy in 2020, and then just five years after that, that's, that's not even a full generation of vehicles. Right. Well, it'd be at 54 and a yeah, half. Well, what, that's, what the, what the law said was they had the, the law said that they had to set the standards. So they got to at least 35, um, the actual, um, the actual standard that ended up being imposed uh, put this, put them at around uh, 40, I think around 41 or 42 in 2020. So it goes, it goes above and beyond the law. So that's what I'm getting at is oh, I see, I see. NHTSA and EPA went uh, effectively went, be, you know, the, the, the law st- uh, specified a minimum, which was 35. But it, oh, it didn't give this, a maximum. The, that's the target. Right. I, I see. And so based on the evaluations, they determined that 54.5 in 2025 uh, was feasible, to, technically, both technically and economically feasible to reach. So that's hmm. that's where that that's where that came from. So what could happen now conceivably, and I think there's a pretty good likelihood that it will happen, uh, is that the um, that NHTSA and, and EPA will roll back the the targets uh, back to basically set it at the minimum that was mandated by Congress, which is 35 miles per gallon. And then uh, the the other thing that they can do, you know, as part of the regulations, uh, if a manufacturer fails to meet their targets for every mile per gallon that they miss the target by, they get a certain fine per vehicle that they sell, you know, for, for their fleet. So the more vehicles they sell and they miss the target, um, you know, they can get fined millions or tens of millions of dollars each year for missing those targets. So they could also roll back those target or those fines. Um, so that even though, uh, even though they may miss, you know, even, even if they miss the, the, the reduced thresholds, or even if they don't, if they don't change the targets, if they leave the targets at 54.5 and just eliminate the penalties effectively, it, you know, it's like it not being there at all. If there's no penalty. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the penalty has its own chilling effect, but the, the lack of a, a penalty doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to continue to see more efficient vehicles you know right. this is this is something that has to play out right and and in fact um in fact you know we the what i get at in the in the blog post that i wrote is that regardless of what uh epa and nitsa do with the regulations um the reality is that you know uh over the next product cycle or two it's probably not going to have any real impact on their product planning and and technology planning um, because they still have to meet um, standards uh, for California and the other states that follow California, um, but you know which go you know which would which would still be at that that higher level. Plus, they still have to meet the zero emissions vehicle mandates that California uh, has imposed. So they still have to sell a lot of electric vehicles and, and plug-in hybrids. Uh, and, you know, there's the, there's also the fact that, you know, the auto industry is a global industry and these companies have to sell vehicles in Europe and in Asia and, and other parts of the world um, that are not planning to roll back their standards. You know, they are planning to maintain their standards, uh, which are even tougher than those here in the U.S. Uh, so 
um, it's not going to change the the technologies that they develop and the and the products that they develop. But what it could do, and this this kind of in, in a way ties in with you know one of the other stories we have on the rundown tonight. Um, it, it could change uh, their marketing strategy for what vehicles and and what what equipment they market in different parts of the U.S. So um, if EPA, you know, if the feds roll back the standards or roll back the penalties for missing the the target, the fuel economy targets, while California and the other and the other nine states that follow the California rules um, maintain theirs, what we're likely to see is a shift in which products get marketed to different regions of the country. So, you know, they're going to push, um, you know, the electrified vehicles in California and the Northeast. And then in the other parts of the country, um, they will, you know, sell the vehicles, more of the vehicles that consumers um, in most of the country actually seem to want to buy, which are bigger, less efficient uh, sport utility vehicles and, and trucks. Um, and, you know, that kind of gets us into, you know, one of the one of the big new products that's being shown this week in Chicago. Uh, yes. And when I say big, I mean, big, big literally, <laughs> um, is the, the 2018 Ford Expedition, uh, which is getting its first full redesign in a decade. Um, you know, and so this is Ford's full size pickup or full size SUV competitor to the Chevy Tahoe and, and Suburban and the GMC Yukon and Yukon XL. Um, well, and it's it's more than a decade too late. Like the, it it was pretty heavily revised, but this same basic vehicle has been around since the the, like the 2002. Uh, well, the current version of the platform debuted in 2007 uh, when it got the independent rear suspension. I thought they had that from. Uh, it was the Explorer that came out in the early 2000s. Yeah, the Explorer came out. Explorer around 2000 got an independent rear suspension, but the Expedition didn't get it till 2007. Um, and so that that's the the key difference. I mean, it used to be that the the expedition was based um, on the F series platform, the F one fifty platform, um, but in two thousand seven it diverged quite a bit and went from a solid rear axle to um, uh, independent rear suspension. Which even though you know the expedition has never even come close to the sales of GM's full size SUVs. Uh, in fact, last year. Um, you know, it was, it was less than a GM Ford sold less than a quarter of the number of expeditions that GM sold of, uh, Suburbans, Tahoe's and Yukon's. Um, so, uh, but it, the expedition does have one huge advantage over the GM trucks. Uh, and that is that IRS, um, because what, what that allows them to do because the, um, you know, with an, with a solid rear axle, um, you have to shape the floor pan to allow the entire axle to move up and down. Cause the, the, the differential has got to move vertically, you know, as you go over bumps and stuff. Uh, so what that means is, you know, if you've ever tried to get into the back the third row of a Tahoe or a suburban, you notice that the, the floor curves up quite a bit right behind the second row and sitting in the third row, you end up sitting with your knees kind of, a, you know, around your ears um you know and it's it's not a very comfortable place to be whereas yeah, and there's there's three or four hundred pounds of axle floating around <laughs> yeah. there below you whereas um, you know with with the fords um you know the floor the the floor pan can stay flat all the way back um 
which means that, you know, the seat is actually up off the floor and you have a much more comfortable seating position in the third row of the expedition. Uh, well, I've always thought that the the expedition and the navigator, at least the last few times I, I've driven them, actually, they drive really well. They drive in a way that's pleasing, especially with the EcoBoost V6, uh, you know, somewhat more pleasing than the um, the GM counterparts. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, the the independent suspension also you know, has the added benefit of giving, you know, giving you better ride quality, better, better uh, handling dynamics than the solid axle. Um, but the, you know, the primary reason why they do it is for that, um, extra room in the back, uh, because you don't have to accommodate the, the whole axle moving up and down, only the wheels move up and down. Yeah. Well, there was that whole rollover thing that Ford was dealing with back. Well, yeah, there was that too. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, but that, they, they but had... that was, that was an issue with the explorers, not with the expedition. So, right. Um, but I think that was sort of their secret or not their, their secret, but their special sauce too. Like they, they looked at it and they said, well, we have the Explorer. That's a pretty similar thing. Like let's, let's propagate that. And I, they're, they're not the exact same hardware across the, the lineup, but it's, it was sort of. Yeah. I mean, the, the rear there, suspension the architecture piece. between the expedition and the previous generation Explorer, the 2000 to 2010 Explorer was actually, you know, it's just basically the same layout. It's just scaled up for the yeah. bigger truck. Yeah, and it's got probably got an eight point eight in there, which is like completely bulletproof. And, yeah, um, yeah. But so, uh, but what's 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 really different, you know, about about this new uh, expedition and presumably the the Lincoln Navigator that we'll see in the not too distant future is the the body. Um, the for the last seven or eight years, uh, the expedition and the Navigator have been built at Ford's Louisville, Kentucky uh, assembly plant which also happens to build the Super Duty pickups. Um, and if you'll recall, the Super Duty pickups just got a full redesign um, and went on sale in the last couple of months uh, with uh, an aluminum body, just like the F-150. Uh, since they had to retool the uh, Louisville plant to produce aluminum bodied Super Duties, it makes sense that uh, the other vehicles you produce in that plant are also going to go aluminum, and such is the case with the Expedition. Yeah, well, that makes it uh, save a little weight, although it's not as light as I thought it was going to be with the switch. They've done some things already to the expedition to take weight out of it, too. Um, so I, the, the biggest thing is like styling wise, it it looks a lot different and it, it looks really good if somewhat like an enormous Explorer. But uh, yeah, it's it's the long wheelbase version is so you can expect to lose about 300 pounds out of the biggest one right and it's the smaller ones are going to have less weight savings uh it'll be pretty close it, it, Will it? i mean depending depending on the equipment uh configuration it'll be somewhere between somewhere between two and three hundred pounds on any given uh variant um yeah i think the the weight the weight uh drop on the standard wheelbase one will probably be closer to 200 pounds uh but again it depends on the equipment you have and you know if you're comparing that you know, when they launched the aluminum F-150 a few years ago, uh, you know, they talked about weight savings of up to 700 pounds. But where they got that weight saving, you know, that number uh, from was by comparing the um, 3.5 liter EcoBoost aluminum F-150 against the previous generation uh, steel F-150 with the 6.2 liter V8. Um, so you were getting about 400 pounds, uh, lost 
through, you know, going from steel to aluminum um, and then another hundred or so pounds uh, from the frame uh, through a redesigned frame that went to more high strength steel. Uh, and then, um, you know, the powertrain changes uh, also saved a couple of hundred pounds um, on the expedition because the expedition got a, a mid-cycle refresh a couple of years ago that swapped the V8 for the uh, the 3.5 EcoBoost and now is carrying over uh, with an EcoBoost. You're not getting any, there's no gain there in terms of weight savings. Um, so you're just looking at the, the transition from steel to aluminum and especially on the standard wheelbase uh, version, uh, it's actually about three inches longer than the previous uh, expedition and about an inch wider. So you're getting some extra size, alum, you know, aluminum body, uh, and there's a lot, a lot more equipment. There's a lot of new equipment that wasn't available on previous generation expeditions. So the, the, um, you know, you're, you're trading off, you know, you're losing weight with the steel to aluminum, but you're adding some back with other equipment. Uh, so the net is depending on the configuration is going to be between two and 300 pounds. Yeah, and there's a reason why people love these things too. You know, looking at it, it's it's got three rows. They've made some changes to the second row seats. So like functionally, it's better. You can get in with even child seats in there. Uh, I'm sure, again, it's going to be good to drive. It's going to be quiet. It's going to ride smooth. It's going to be, uh, now that it, they've upgraded the whole thing, you can get some of those newer technologies like the latest versions of Sync and stuff that the, the older vehicle may, just may not have had the electrical and, and data architecture to support. Um there's a lot of real change here um, that that makes this a good vehicle to look at for, you know, staying competitive in a field that while you don't necessarily think of it all the time, you know, the giant SUVs like these are these these vehicles have been called dinosaurs now for the last five or you know, almost 10 years, especially when you know we had a, a economic crisis and everybody was complaining about high fuel prices and these things just have like that slow and steady audience of people who, who like them and who use them. And, uh, it's just, you know, a solid update of this kind of vehicle, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, GM sells a lot more of these things and has for many years than Ford does. Uh, you know, I think GM sold about two, almost 260,000, uh, Yukon's uh, Suburbans and Tahoes in 2016. Ford sold just shy of 60,000 um, of the Expedition and Expedition XL. Um, and, you know, and the, the thing I, I learned uh, just the other day is that actually uh, nearly half of the uh, the Fords uh, were actually sold into rental fleets. Well, see, I was going to ask that about GM. Like, do you think that that's fleet? Maybe it's the, not necessarily the, rental, but like government and municipal. Yeah, well, the, well, the GM uh, rental fleet number is about 15% of sales. Really? People just like the GMs that much more? Yeah. Um, wow. I mean, for whatever reason, you know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, they've certainly got a reputation. You know, people have been buying those things for far longer than than Ford has offered a direct competitor with the Expedition. Um, so it, it's it's hard to say. But, um, you know, certainly you, you do see a lot of, you know, you mentioned, you know, government fleets. You see a lot of them being used uh, for various uh, government applications, you know, to move move VIPs around. 
you know, and oftentimes they're converted, you know, for bulletproof service, that sort of thing. Um, you know, and both, both companies actually sell also sell a lot of these, uh, a lot of these SUVs overseas as well. Uh, they're quite popular, you know, in the middle East and, and other other parts of the world Um, the more ostentatious the better not not necessarily you know and that's the thing you know that people buy them because they they are tough i mean they they take they'll take a lot of abuse and they they work very well in harsh environments Um, that's true and they i mean they have fantastic you know air conditioning systems yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that's one thing that, that the domestics do really well is just so all those comfort systems work pretty pretty nicely in these these trucks yeah so you know getting back to what i was mentioning earlier you know this does kind of tie in with the whole um uh, fuel economy thing you know so what you know what we could potentially be seeing um you know if particularly if, if what they do, if the way they handle this, at least in the short term, is just rolling back the penalties and leaving the targets where they are, but rolling back the penalties, you know, what we could see is manufacturers, um, you know, selling more, more of these types of vehicles into markets, you know, in regions like Texas, you know, where, I mean, Texas is already the, the by far the biggest market for vehicles like this anyway. Uh, but, you know, selling, selling more of these in, in the middle States and, you know, in the South uh, where, you know, these vehicles are also highly profitable. You know, they, they get, a, they get a lot of margin on these vehicles. And if they can boost the sales of these vehicles, even though, you know, it, it hurts their overall uh, fuel economy average, you know, if they're not getting penalized as much for it, uh, then what they can, what that will allow them to do is also push the EVs more uh, in places like California and the Northeast, where they're required to sell those vehicles, um, and you know help you know offset some of the uh, the losses or or reduced margins on those vehicles in those regions. So what this could end up doing is is helping the bottom line for the automakers that are selling these types of vehicles. Uh, so it's Maybe. all it's all, it's all part of this this big mix of you know changing the you know not not changing the the product plan but changing the marketing strategy. I mean that's yeah that's a little bit of interesting conjecture especially since it's stuff that they're they're already working on they've already got these these things. I mean I guess my concern going back to the the fuel economy uh, stuff is there seems to be and we'll, we'll actually get to we'll cover this point a little bit in just a minute um, on one of our next topics, but there seems to be this, this great enthusiasm for pushing a lot of authority and decision-making down to the state level. Um, what that means for stuff like fuel economy is that you're going to get a mishmash of, you could get a mishmash of different state standards, um, almost like we do with gasoline, which makes it really difficult because, you know, states have their own gasoline formulation uh-huh. standards. And that's one of the things that affects the price and the availability of, of fuel. Um, it's not a nationwide thing. Uh, so you've got this patchwork quilt. Uh If you wind up with that with fuel economy and uh, emission standards, Automakers are just they're going to race to sort of not race to the bottom, but they're going to pick the the one state that's the most restrictive and set that as the default. And then we're all going to, you know, so we'll all be California at that point because um, the variations cost just cost too much money. Even like, you know, you were pointing out with with a global uh, a global market, you know, at a certain point. 
they're just going to make one that they can sell as many places as possible without having to make any changes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly one one possible way it could play out. Um, you know, I think, you know, only we're just going to have to wait and see, um, you know, for specifics. But um, I, I I do suspect that, you know, it's um, it's probably going to be more like a, a a, two, a dual strategy. Um, I like your strategy better. It sounds better. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, th- I mean, certainly, you know, I, I understand, you know, where you're coming from with, you know, wanting to have a, a single, uh, you know, a single lineup. Um, yeah. But I think realistically, you know, based on what's, what's probably going to happen, you know, you're probably looking at, um, at two, you know, the thing is, that, you know, they're going to have the, you know, these two types of vehicles anyway. That's um, true. I mean, there are there are. Yeah, so I think it's just a matter stop, of, yeah. you know, they're, now they're going to have the option of selling more, selling more volumes of the lower, uh, the lower fuel economy vehicles, the lower fuel economy, higher margin vehicles to help offset the the other ones that they still have to sell, at least for now. Yeah, well, I mean, so you, we've removed uh, we're, we're talking about removing one of the sticks um, and that sort of makes a, a different carrot show up. But it's good for an automaker. Uh, I just, you know, again, taking the long view, too, it's kind of like at what cost? You oh, know, yeah. We, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not implying that this is, you know, necessarily good for the country as a whole. Um, but, you know, purely from a from a business perspective of of what would be the the rational thing to do you know if you're trying to run the business and trying to maximize your profits you know while still meeting you know the various uh, regulatory mandates you have in different regions you know whether that be different regions of the country or different regions of the world um you know this this you know from a from a purely business standpoint you know this seems like the the most rational uh solution you know regardless of whether it's actually the best solution for you know, the environment or the country as a whole. Yeah, well, let's let's segue and <laughs> we can talk about um, how there's you you where we picked up a piece about, uh, you know, NBC News did it. But the four uh, Republican lawmakers who want to abolish the EPA um, just it sounds like there's a whole lot of folks that really want to push stuff down to to the states and uh you know, move those those regulations out of the federal level. Uh, I can understand that to a certain degree, the argument that um, states are better at making decisions for those states than than the federal government is. Uh, but yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's at least in at least in theory, that might seem to be the case. Uh, right. That's that's the theory. I, I don't think that that's. We're at we are where we are with the federal stuff because the state level stuff, you know, we 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 didn't see it play out as as well and as, as efficiently as as it needed to. But I don't and, know and what's even, your piece you know, to say even, on that. Yeah, I mean, even under you know current um, regulations, you know, in in areas where you know the states are responsible for certain things, you know, they have not, you know, a lot of states have not done a good job of uh, protecting the environment and and protecting. Um, you know, the air and water that their their citizens have to to breathe and drink, um, you know, look, for example, at, uh, you know, the state I live in, in Michigan. You know, I mean, we've we all heard about what happened in, in Flint, in Flint, right? You know, where 
um, the the state um, you know imposed a, an emergency financial manager on the city of Flint. I mean, you know, yes, Flint absolutely had a lot of problems long before the state essentially came in and took over, you know, and they have for decades for a wide variety of reasons. You know, but one of the first things that the emergency financial manager in Flint did was he looked at how much the city was spending on water. Uh, you know, they were getting in Flint, like many cities in South, Southeast Michigan was getting its, its drinking water supply uh, from the Detroit water system. Uh, so also the cost of water from the Detroit water system is screwy. It's really high. It, it is high, but it's also very high quality water. Um, you know, I mean, where I live in, in Ypsilanti, uh, just outside of Ann Arbor, we also get our water from the Detroit water system. And, you know, yes, it's on the high side, but, you know, I, I don't think it's extraordinarily high, uh, you know, at least you know, as a homeowner. Um, and, you know, the, the water quality is very good. Um, you know, what they did in Flint was they they basically said, OK, you know, we're not going to buy water from Detroit anymore. We're going to take it from the Flint River. And um, let's just say the, the Flint River is not the cleanest uh, source of water in the world. Uh, and so that that resulted in them putting a lot of extra chemicals into the water, which were uh, quite corrosive. Um, and because of, you know, a lot of old pipes and a lot of lead pipes uh, in the you know, both in, in in homes in Flint and homes and businesses in Flint, um, it resulted in very high levels of lead for a lot of Flint residents, um, which caused all kinds of problems. And, um, you know, I mean, we, we don't need to rehash all that, but basically what I'm getting at is, you know, that you can't, um, you can't necessarily rely on states to really properly enforce this stuff um, and and to really protect their their residents. It, it just does not, you know, it does not work that well. Um, yeah, well, and I mean, even with Flint, you know, the, the federal government, while well, there's been. You it's know, far from perfect, in, but they've generally right. done a better job than most states have at, at the state level. Um, yeah. So, well, I mean, we can go down the list. We've got. Uh, Matt Gates. Um, yeah, he's the one that introduced the bill last week uh, in uh, in Congress. Uh, it was HR 861. Right. And and his uh, his reasoning for it is our small businesses cannot afford to cover the costs associated with compliance too often leading to closed doors and unemployed Americans. Um, I I suppose there is that like, yes, compliance is is difficult and, and high, but it's also worth doing. Uh, because you know we've we've seen these things recover from the 50s, 60s, and 70s where they were just horribly polluted. You know mm -hmm. the land has come back, and so now it's at a point where we've almost got like collective amnesia about how bad it was uh, and and how bad many of these. Just well, this is this is the United States work. of amnesia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another uh, rep is uh, Barry Loudermilk. He's from Georgia. Um, and this the same kind of thing where he's, you know, saying the, the Georgia would be, uh, you know, would do a much better job protecting the environment than a big D.C. bureaucracy. Uh, again, like I can understand the sentiment, but um, also I don't know how large a bureaucracy the EPA actually is comparatively, uh, especially anytime you compare things against the largest bureaucracy, which the is defense say, department, the defense department. Um, all this stuff is a pittance. Uh, 
you know, T- Thomas Massey's from uh, Kentucky and uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's just disdain for the federal agency on his voting record, according to NBC News. Those are their words, not mine. So let's just say I'm trying <laughs> to be respectful. I do understand that these. these well, you know, fr- frankly, you know, having, having heard, you know, many, many of these uh, members of Congress speak, you know, um, I don't think that they would argue. I don't think most of these guys would argue that they have a disdain for these agencies. And, you know, I mean, we've we've seen, um, you know, the the current Congress, you know, introduce actually a number of bills. You know, I mean, this is this is one of them that's relevant to what we're talking about. But there's also there, you know, there was another bill that was introduced, uh, I think, just today uh, to eliminate the Department of Education. And, you know, they're so. Right. Well, and so some of this, like, I do understand the frustration and like, I, we're going to, I guess we're going to delve into politics here briefly. So that's fine. Um, you know, there is certainly concern, even among uh, those of us who say may lean a little bit more liberal that uh, with the, say, the Department of Education, unions have a stronghold on that to a, to a degree. It's mm-hmm. just, nobody's going to argue that there's not work to do. Uh, it's just blowing it up and <laughs> making chaos. It's not necessarily the universal salve here, you know, like that, that may not be the best thing to do. We may want to take a more structured approach to sort of backing and unwinding those unions. Cause certainly unions, u- unions are an issue with the department of education. Um, the idea Absolutely. That I, I totally agree. But, and yeah, like you said, I, yeah. you know, just eliminate, you know, eliminating it, you know, nuking the thing is not necessarily the right, the right answer. Yeah, I um, so I I get it. I get that these are areas that are under um, under financial and economic stress and that yeah, it is it is difficult. And there is that feeling that the companies have been uh, regulated to death. Um, and, you know, just some of these things are sort of immediately onerous, but long term they they pay off. Um, you know, the idea of a, we don't want to have a climate tax. Well, OK, but. Again, who's whose future are you mortgaging when you when you do that? And then we're opening up federal lands to, you know, they want to open up federal lands to more drilling. The Dakota Access Pipeline is going to get its uh, approval. There's a whole lot of issues around that one. Um, just I mean, you could just go back to the Dakota Wars and just be like, we're so completely wrong <laughs> with that. The, the way we've lied to those people for so many years. <sighs> I'm getting worked up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what does this mean? Is like, a, to, to, why did it wind up, I guess, on our, our list of things to, to cover? Why, other than like, these are things that we, you know, could affect the cars in, in positive ways in terms of making them less expensive or, uh, you know, rolling back some of these, uh, these things that automakers are going to have to deal with. Uh, but why is it sort of something we should keep an eye on? Um, mainly because I think, you know, it's, it's, almost certainly going to impact um, the type of cars that we uh, that we have available uh, to buy, uh, at least in certain parts of the country. Um, you know, and it's going it's going to impact the, the mix, you know, the, the shares, uh, you know, the market shares of different types of vehicles um, over the coming decade. Uh, if if some of these changes happen. Um, so, you know, that, you know, that I think, you know, affects all of us. Um, and, you know, it could it could potentially have, you know, despite the fact that, um, you know, there may be some some short term benefit to the automakers um, if they if they, you know, basically you know, if they go after, you know, if they um, respond too aggressively 
to some of the potential regulatory changes, it could end up hurting them in the long run uh, in terms of the global market that they still have to compete in. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this before. This is like yeah. an echo of, a, you know, every generation has one of these. You can you can go back to the, you know, even the earlier 2000s or the 90s or the 80s or the 70s. <laughs> like we've seen this stuff play out before. Um, and and we, we know what happens. You know, you get you get an economic swing and the price of fuel. Now it's it's pretty low and it's pretty stable. Um, but you get unrest, or, uh, you know, global unrest. Things, uh, things can change very rapidly. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it changes very rapidly. You know, I mean, at the so, beginning, at the beginning of 2008, we had gas that was four dollars a gallon. And by the end of the year, it was half of that. It's been that way for quite a while. The gas is the gas price has been cheap. But, you know, it only takes one event. Uh, the initial gas crisis in 73 was just the result of the October War, mm-hmm. um, where the United States provided support to Israel and that uh Got the oil producing nations over there a little bit upset at us, and they they cut supply. And now that kind of kink in supply wouldn't wouldn't really dent us uh, like it did then. And even then, it wasn't it wasn't the massive uh, restriction that it's been made out to be. But it, it really rattled everyone. Um, and so that's you know it just just takes one thing, and <laughs> we could have very expensive fuel for for quite a while. Um, yeah. So I don't know. The uh, the idea that we're just going to just all run to big vehicles and because uh, you know, gas is cheap and stuff, it, it, it makes me a little nervous. Not that I don't like big vehicles, but um, the, the swings are they're difficult if you get out of sync with reality and nobody knows what reality is going to be in the next couple of years uh, at any point, you know, pick a yeah. point. And, well, you know, and, and being, being out of sync with reality is part of why, um, you know, the industry you know, is pushing back against the uh, the fuel economy regulations as well, because, you know, the reality is, you know, we've got um, low fuel prices and, you know, they're projected, you know, short of some uh, extraordinary circumstances they're you know, fuel prices are project- projected to remain low uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, we've got uh, these demands regulatory demands for higher efficiency vehicles um you know in other parts of the world you know they don't have that low fuel price scenario to deal with and so they're able to sell those higher efficiency vehicles and you know here the there's manufacturers are struggling to sell those types of vehicles because fuel is cheap and so the consumers you know say why should i buy a more efficient vehicle um you know when gas is so cheap and that's always been that's always been the challenge with fuel efficient vehicles in the U.S. and small vehicles as well, just selling them profitably. Uh, you know, the best argument I can make for that is that it's a, it's a strategic advantage to not use all of your resources in the flush times and just plan for, uh, you know, constrained resources. You know, plan plan for a disaster, you know, <laughs> hope for the best and plan for the worst. That's right. Um, and nobody ever does. That's sort of like, you know, <laughs> buy low, sell high. Everybody buys high and sells low. <laughs> they freak out. Um, but, you know, this this sort of points up our... One in doubt our, panic, right? Right. Our, <laughs> it's, it's effective. Our very last uh, topic that we have, have on the list is just, again, you know, shifting market demands and uh, you know, some other things like, uh, you know, emission scandals and stuff have led to... The, the change in the type of vehicles we're even able to buy, you know, Volkswagen has decided to walk away from small diesels and develop mild hybrids instead. And I think there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one being that 
they're probably easier to develop mild hybrids into more full electric vehicles should things progress that way and there be breakthroughs in battery technology, uh, where it's very hard and very expensive to develop a diesel engine that's going to pass the emission standards, which is why Volkswagen didn't do it the last time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, as as the emission standards get tougher and tougher, you know, the, the cost of meeting those standards um, also goes up, you know, exponentially. And you know, since VW couldn't couldn't isn't able to meet their the standard the current standards with their current diesels, um, meeting future standards is going to be even tougher. And so, you know, they're looking at alternatives and you know what they're, you know, while they're you know they're putting a big emphasis on electrification and selling a lot of plug-ins and and plug you know battery battery electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles in the next decade. Um, you know, that's still going to be rep, you know, only a, a minor, a vast major minority of their overall sales. And, you know, where, you know, they currently sell, you know, upwards of 50, 60% diesel engines, you know, small diesel engines in their cars in Europe. Um, you know, they're now looking to move away from that, uh, particularly focusing on, uh, 48 volt mild hybrids, uh, you know, with gasoline engines, uh, as an alternative that can, you know, pretty much match the fuel economy of those small diesels, uh, but potentially do it at a significantly lower cost compared to trying to meet uh, new emission standards with those same diesel engines. Yeah. Well, and again, like just the amount of money that they'd have to sink into the diesels is astronomical. So you might as well just put that into something that's, you know, going to be a, a little bit instead of the diesel engine, which is going to have a, fi a more finite life that the battery electric stuff seems to be where where things are going so put the money there put the money in the future i guess yep absolutely is, uh, is uh, what i would say so um and uh, the the dream i guess the diesel dream is dead for now <laughs> at least <laughs> at least uh, you know in you know small diesels and small cars uh yes i mean you know i think we're still going to see diesels in in larger heavier vehicles for some time to come uh, just because the the nature of those engines, you know, it works very well with those type of vehicles and, you know, batteries, the amount of battery you need for for bigger, heavier trucks, um, you know, cargo vehicles and, and commercial vehicles um, just makes them impractical. Um, so, you know, I think, yeah, I think the going, you know, going with um, hybrids in those uh, smaller vehicles just makes sense. Yeah. Well, and. I, the diesel too like it's i guess it's just a nox thing really right like the co2 to, that they output is not really that bad and it was always the thing sort of a, a good well yeah diesel is actually cleaner than a gas engine in some respects so yeah absolutely i mean certainly in terms of co2 emissions they were you know much lower because i mean co2 is you know directly proportional to the fuel that you burn um you know, hydrocarbon fuels that you burn, you know, you produce, produce carbon dioxide when you burn those. So if you burn less fuel, you, you, you produce less CO2. Um, and that's why, you know, they were so fond of diesels, you know, and because they had tough CO2 standards there um, and, and high fuel prices, um, you know, with mild hybrids and gas, you know, smaller gasoline engines, you can now reach those same, you know, reduced CO2 levels um at a potentially lower cost i just i just want a turbine i go to bed sometimes dreaming about a turbine electric hybrid that, you, like it would burn anything you could burn you, you need to talk to uh, ian wright at uh, right speed 
um, that's that's what he's been developing is uh, a turbine uh, plug-in hybrid uh, system for um, heavy-duty trucks. But uh, that that's that's a topic uh, maybe maybe for next week or, or an it? upcoming show. I, well, I mean, I have I have a, a couple of other things we should actually talk about too. Is uh, you know, I was wondering like, okay, uh, we see a lot of, and I'll just tee this up, but we see a lot of electric vehicle uh, manufacturers coming in at the high end. Um, what if you wanted to create a, a vehicle that sort of like sells in the fifteen thousand to thirty thousand range? Doesn't necessarily have to be a hybrid, but like, how how would you sort of like if you wanted to be an upstart auto manufacturer? I see why they're going with you know it actually seems easy to do it as an electric vehicle versus you know the 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 gasoline vehicle. I just was like. I, I have long drives, let's say. And so I think about these things like, well, the, the, I mean, the, cha- the challenge, the challenge there is to, you know, the cost of batteries is still um, sufficiently high that you're going to have a hard time getting um, a, a battery electric vehicle in that price range with a sufficient, a sufficient range uh, to meet market demands. So what if you were to just, you know, decided you wanted to just do conventional powertrains but come up with a car that sells you know like why has there not been a manufacturer that's been an upstart more conventionally i guess again this is a topic for (laughs) (laughs) because the the cost of engineering those vehicles and and tooling up to to build them uh, you know the capital the capital investment to build cars is extraordinarily high um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah. You could. You could conceivably buy engines from another OEM, yeah, but I mean, you, you know, they, buy them from from manufacturers. So they'd be willing to sell you stuff, but then I guess you're going to get a mishmash. Yeah. You know, integ- integrating all of that, you know, into a cohesive package is is problematic. It's an interesting thought experiment, and we yeah. should, we can continue to talk about it. So, uh, last week we actually uh, we teed up the interviews that you did with uh, Steve Majoros, uh, who's uh, Chevy's marketing manager, and Adam Heisel, who's uh, GM's electric propulsion calibration engineer. So we'll, we can cut those in here. Uh, did you want to have uh, any sort of preface uh, preface to that, or uh... no? I think we can just dive right into those. Uh, I think they're you know when you listen to them, they're self explanatory. Um, you know, talk to Steve about you know, what the kind of what the strategy was with the bolt as far as, you know, what, you know, why they created the type of vehicle they did. Uh, and then uh, Adam, that conversation with Adam's a little shorter. Uh, he explains some of the, uh, the technical things that they did uh, in terms of um, the split between uh, regenerative braking and friction braking uh, on the bolt. And, you know, some things that they did a little differently this time from what they've done previously on, on the spark EV and on the volt. Um, so, uh, just, uh, listen to those. I think, uh, I think you'll find them interesting and informative, uh, and then, uh, we'll come right back and finish it up with, uh, some reader or some listener email. Yeah. Well, we have, so I guess some Twitter questions and some yeah. Facebook. Yeah. So anyway, we'll listen to those. We'll come back. Steve, the, the bolt, um, as I understand it, the plan is, uh, to actually market that it's, it's part of, you're considering that part of, uh, Chevrolet's crossover family. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. And what, what's the rationale for that you know, as opposed to marketing it as a car? Well, I, I think part of it is, uh, there's a couple things. When we, when we first started researching the, uh, the vehicle and we talked to people about what they wanted from a configuration, you know, a vehicle standpoint, uh, they gave us 
consumers give Chevrolet a lot of credibility when it comes to what I'll call high-function, high-utility products, right? So the Tahoe Suburban, Equinox, Traverse, et cetera. And I, I think that um, by positioning this you know, as a crossover, now we could argue all day long about what defines a crossover, right? Does it have to have all-wheel drive, not all-wheel drive, this, that, how, how ride, is it a wagon, is it a hatchback, whatever. I think crossover is kind of a universally accepted term for something that has a little more ride height, has a little more uh, functionality, traditionally a lift gate design versus a traditional trunk. And we didn't want people to take away that uh, this was a vehicle that is more of a traditional car proportion. So, um, we just figured it was a way to uh, to kind of get people to readily identify with the function, with the foundational configuration of the vehicle, uh, and we get a little side benefit because Chevrolets have got a lot of traditional strength in, in crossovers and SUVs. So that's what we're going with it. We don't purport to say that oh, this is you know you can you know traverse great terrain in this product. <laughs> you right, know, you're not going to be towing. You're not going to be towing and what have you, and it doesn't have all-wheel drive and so those sorts of things. So there's always convenient, you know, arguments against it, but uh, I think for consumer shorthand, it's the right way to go with it. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, especially in the last few years, there's been kind of a, the, the term crossover is kind of broadened, you know, it's not, it's not just a utility, it's not just an SUV built on a car platform, it's, it's become a much broader term covering a lot of different kinds of vehicles. Yeah, I mean, look at the proliferation, you're exactly right, of just uh, the, not just the number of entries, but the type of entries, you know. And at some point, people can uh, people can point at a car and say that's a car. They can point at a truck and say that's a truck. They can kind of point at traditional large utilities, Tahoe, Suburbans, Expeditions, and say that's an SUV. The rest of it, I mean, what's a Juke versus a Mazda 3 exactly. versus, a, you know what I mean, a Honda, whatever that thing was, a Scion. I mean, it's this massive category of things that, well, I know, I don't know necessarily what it is, but I know what it's not, <laughs> right? Yeah. And in a way, a lot of these vehicles fall in that space and, and crossover, you know, we, we research a lot. You know, if you look at consumer search behavior on the internet and you look at things like that, you know, we have to wind up doing a lot of work with our metadata tagging on sites and search behavior because people do search SUV, they search crossover. So we look at that and say, there's enough kind of understanding of that term that we felt that it was a credible way to describe the car. And I think especially if you look, um, especially in Europe over the last several years, uh, there's been a lot of proliferation. And since this is a global vehicle, I know you're mainly responsible mm -hmm. for the U.S., but you know, it's a global vehicle. Um, you've got... You know, in, in Europe, you've got things like the Citroen Cactus and, um, you know, the Juke you mentioned. And, you know, there's, there's a broad array of different yeah. types of vehicles that all kind of fall into that crossover space. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the other part of it was customers are looking for, um, you know, we like to say that this vehicle is so much more than a, you know, Monday through Friday, point A to point B single occupant type car or vehicle. And... When you place it in that kind of crossover lexicon, um, if we're to broaden EV adoption, and if we're going to get people, you know, more than just what's been either available now or the customer base that's there now, people have a set of expectations that are much more than it's been historically, right? So early EV buyers, you know, were willing to sacrifice certain things. Today's customers aren't willing to sacrifice certain things, right? 
I, I have to have a vehicle that's going to serve my utilitarian and functional needs. I want the safety features. I want infotainment. I want, I want, I want. And that's what we have to deliver. And so part of that is the configuration. We heard so many stories from people that were in Leafs or uh, whatever, Sparky, our own Sparky V. I love it. But on the weekend, I, I got to take two or three kids to soccer and this, and we may drive 50 miles to a, a tournament or whatever. We may detour off and go visit. And we never wanted to feel constricted by what the vehicle could either do or where the vehicle could take us. And so uh, these are all very deliberate decisions on key messaging and, and also just kind of the, the configuration of the vehicle because it really is a no compromise vehicle on what we talk about with range, et cetera, but also just basic configuration. I mean, I, I was fortunate to be driving, you know, a captured test fleet for about three months, and I've got three, you know, grown men and children, and they were all home for the holiday, and that was the car we took. We took it out to dinner, we went downtown, and, you know, it was kind of like my son and I play hockey together a lot. You know, we opened the back, we're putting two adult hockey bags in, four hockey sticks going in real easy, and it's kind of like, yeah, this is kind of what it's intended to do. How... How broad do you think the market is for a car like the Bolt? Um, you know, I mean, how, how how aggressively is is Chevrolet planning to to push this uh, in the marketplace? Well, we're gonna we've learned a lot of things from Volt, um, and I think in in the the subsequent generations of, of Volt, I think that what you'll see you'll you will see from us the kinds of things you would expect to see from us. Where we need to be, ex- experiential is key. Um, getting people to get behind the wheel of the car and see it. We like to say, you know, pictures don't do this car justice. And I'd rather have 100 people get behind the wheel, experience it, and drive it if they can, versus, you know, just, uh, you know, a banner hung somewhere that says, hey, Bolt TV is a great car, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're doing a lot of experiential things. We're doing a lot of things with, with you know, the, the, the thing about EV people, diesel people, performance people, Smaller universe, but boy, high content needs, high social uh, chatter. Um, so we have to be present in the places where we can help people with content and help people understand what this vehicle does. But we're going to put this into some of our broader communications, and you'll see this tomorrow morning. We have a new execution in our you know shattering perceptions campaign, as we call it, or the you know real people, not actors, where uh, Bolt TV plays a prominent role because you know. Again, early on, EVs had to be different in some reason, and kind of the marketing had to be different. Now EVs are just like, hey, I don't want to look like I'm driving some strange vehicle. It's got to meet all these needs I've got, including a sense of design aesthetic. Same thing from the marketing. So we didn't want to say, well, let's let's have Chevrolet be this in marketing, but you know what? Oh, cut Volt from the herd and do something over here. Volt TV is going to play a natural part of our story because – I think it's important for two things. Number one, the the gravitas of Chevrolet can help buoy Bolt TV, and I think Bolt TV adds a dimension to the Chevrolet brand that a lot of people um, may not either know of or, or think about. We're great at crossovers and sport utilities, right? We're great in trucks. We're great in performance. Our car portfolio is doing great things with the new models out there. But a lot of you know out here, people know the electric space great. Most states they don't, mm-hmm. but if they can see that Chevrolet is a progressive, forward-thinking brand. We talk about putting emphasis and proof points behind fine new roads. Well, there's no better proof point of that than than this vehicle right here. So it will be uh, 
unique things to the EV space in the marketing, but it will be part of our broader efforts because I think that, again, that two-way street will work nicely that Bolt EV can benefit Chevrolet and Chevrolet can benefit Bolt EV. Uh, you mentioned experiential before. I think uh, GM or Chevrolet has talked about uh, having bolts uh, as part of the uh, the Lyft Express Drive program yeah. and mm-hmm. also putting them into the Maven fleets. Um, is is that going to be? Do you, do you see that as being a significant part of that experiential play of getting people exposed to this vehicle? Yeah. I mean, that's good. that's going to be part of it. I mean, there's probably four or five major levers that we're working on. Obviously, we're very fortunate to have the relationship, you know, to have, have developed the, the Maven uh, brand within the company and the relationship with Lyft. So we're working through the details now about how Bolt EVs play a role there. But that's certainly one part of it. Um, we have a phenomenal program that you don't hear much about unless you're at the auto show. Now, we were probably right at NAS together. We don't do it in Detroit just by virtue of weather and timing. Right. But in most markets, we have an auto show test drive program. Mm-hmm. So people can we, – we will either – so if you were a hand raiser for Bolt TV, you said, hey, keep me up to speed here. We'll invite you to the auto show. We'll give you first preference to come and drive the vehicle. So come to the auto show. Check it out. And then there's closed, you know, there's closed course or open course to, to drive the vehicle. Did it in Portland, did it in, in San Francisco, did it in San Diego, and a lot of other markets. So that's one way where we can, again, get those people that are interested. Or you just happen to be wandering on the show, you talk to a, you know, someone on the show floor, and they say, hey, you want to drive it? It's right outside. And Bolt TV, I mean, this is a great stat, it's blowing away Camaro on test drives. And you'd think that most people, right, who want to say, oh, I got a chance to drive the new Camaro? The, the Bolt EV test drive, the line is, is considerably longer to get inside Bolt EV. So we're doing programs like that. We're doing innovative programs. We've got one called Test Drive My Way, which is a kind of a test program we're doing in a couple markets. We, we started with Volt, and it did great things for us, where we'll actually bring the vehicle to your home. We'll give you 24 hours with the car. We have a trained sales consultant that can help you walk through the vehicle. But it kind of lets you experience the vehicle on your time, on your terms. You can park it in your garage, those sorts of things. So, again, a limited small market program, but we're seeing some great success with it. So how do we replicate and get scale with that? You know, and then other things we're doing, right? So other exposure opportunities. But driving and being in the car is a big part of what we're going to do. Okay. I assume you probably don't want to talk about, you know, kind of what your target volumes are for, but in terms of volume, uh, is it is it, is it going to come down to uh, meeting whatever the customer, the, the market demand is, or do you plan to at least initially limit the, the volumes for whatever other business reasons. Well, we're gonna I mean, we, we're gonna go hard after what customer demand is, and the, the the trick is you don't really know what customer demand is. I mean, this is such a new and, and interesting space. Um, you know, it, it's one side is this could take off and be phenomenal, and that'd be great for us. You know, one side is you know in many ways it's like. Uh, you know, NIMBY in prisons, right? I mean, everyone's forum, just not in my backyard. I think one of the things that we face with electric vehicles is when you have the rational discussion with, you know, X number of people, everyone's like, of course, I'm in. But what we hear sometimes is, that's great for him, (laughs) right? And so we have to kind of, um, what we're working very hard on now and our dealers are working very hard on is how do we translate attention and uh, acceptance to transaction? Um, we got a pretty good sense of where first-year volume is going to be. And remember, a lot of this was planned out, you know, three, four years ago. Sure. I mean, if we wanted to, you know, if we were on, uh, you know, 
pick a car, whatever, Cruise or Camaro or whatever, and we we were a lot better idea of what to expect. what to expect, and, and we got a lot. I would say probably a little more su- uh, supplier nimbleness, you know, where we've got things and we say, hey man, you know, whatever feature X is running real hot, can we get ten percent more? Mm-hmm. Blah, and you could you know. Make things happen. It's a little harder when you're talking about batteries, batteries and motors. Yeah, batteries and, and drive units and then what have you. So we got a pretty good sense of where we think year one volume is going to be. Um, and we're looking really at Bolt EV kind of in combination with Volt, right? Because, again, we don't have 50 years of, of cross-shopping migration behavior to say, well, what? we really have a, we have kind of a sense of where these will go. And really, we think year one... We don't think Volt's gonna gonna miss a beat, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, Volt had its best year ever last year, best December, best month ever. So Volt is is still going hot. We think Volt TV's gonna come in and run hot. I think the trick for us is really gonna be year two, year three. You know, as we say, okay, that was year one. Kind of, I'm sure we're gonna meet what we have internally forecasted. We'll get a sense of where market demand is, and then you know we'll we'll dial up or dial down. When when you saw nearly 400,000 people sign up to pre-order. A Tesla Model 3 last spring. Did that cause you to rethink any of this? You know, as far as as far as your, your yeah. projections of volume. And- well, I, I think what it says is um, there's a lot of people interested in the space, and you know, we like to say that uh, um, EV attention. It's the old, you know, high tide raises all boats. Oh, look, I. We love what Tesla has done for the market, just like I'm sure they look at us and they love what Bolt EV has done for the market. Because if we can get uh, EV into the conversation and consideration set, if we can get more people understanding what it's truly like to live electric and drive electric, um, I think the better off it's going to be for everybody. I mean, if you, you know, God knows what the mobility will be like 50 years from now, right? But if you could say that there were a few companies that really helped uh, we're really part of the catalyst for the change, um, and if GM and Chevrolet was one of those, I think that's going to be a good thing for us. Um, the trick for that is, and, and nobody has the Tesla crystal ball, how many of those are curiosity seekers? How many of those are just, well, sure, why not? How many of those are, I'm dead set, I'm going to get one? And there's there's certainly those people, there's no doubt. It's a little bit like an election, right? It's, you know, California, the, the Republicans will never swing that in their favor and whatever, the Democrats will never swing state X in their favor. But there's a lot of people kind of in the middle. Uh, if we can tell our product story, if we can get people believing that Chevrolet is a credible electric manufacturer, if they can trust who we are as a company, they have access to the product and a great dealer network, um, and we deliver on the promises that we made, which we have, then I, I think we're going to go out there in, in year one and, and make some noise. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. Steve. Yeah. Appreciate it. Okay, man. Uh, Adam. Adam Heisel. And uh, what's your title? So I'm the lead propulsion calibrator on the Chevrolet Bolt EV. All right. So um, obviously with EVs, uh, compared to uh, internal combustion engine cars, Software plays a, a much bigger role. A low, it's playing a big role on everything, right. now, but um, especially on electric vehicles. Um, what what were some of the first of all? What were some of the the overall challenges? What, what were some of the um, solutions that you guys came up with that's unique to this car? That you um, based on things you've learned previously from the Volt and mm-hmm. the Spark 
uh, EV and so on. Yeah, so with this car, I mean, the biggest thing when we started doing the testing was we had to get 200 miles. Like, we knew that was this magic threshold. All of our research has shown 200 miles was going to open the car up to people that previously said, ah, it's just too short of a range. They wouldn't have to deal with it. 200 miles is like this new category. So that was, like, first and foremost in everything. So then you start pecking away at what can we do to be more efficient with everything. The, the regenerative braking that we have in the vehicle, uh, there's a couple different combinations of it, whether it's in drive, in, with shifters in drive, and you push the brake pedal. We have some additive brake region that we put in there, so you push the brakes, uh, you get some uh, motor torque that you get, and then also the friction brakes will kick in if you push the brakes hard enough. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, through the Volt previously, uh, in Gen 1 Volt, uh, so when it first launched, it had a drive and a low mode in the shifter. And the low is, uh, you slow, if you want to try to maybe slow the car down a little bit more, people would pull in the low. We started finding out pretty quickly that our customers, we have several customers that are would drive around in low all the time. You know, I don't think it was ever envisioned that mode, it was just kind of this auxiliary mode we put. And so if you're talking to them um, and see what we did on Gen 2 Volt, where they then added the region on demand paddle, uh, we're taking it to the next level. It's like, you know, the, turning it up to 11, if you will, of giving them even more authority in the pedal. So now you can, as opposed to having to dance over to the brake pedal while you're slowing down, you just start lifting off the accelerator pedal, uh, and it gives you that deceleration. If you want it all the way, you fully left off, and if not, you have to keep it applied just a touch in there. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was uh, traditionally, traditionally was hybrids uh, and earlier EVs. Uh, as you come down to uh, almost to a stop, uh, the, the regen is generally phased up, yeah. and you phase in uh, yeah. your friction braking to, to finish the stop. Yeah. And you mentioned you're doing something different now with the Bolt. Yeah, I like to say, I mean, uh, since I don't know, General Motors, I think 1948, we came up with the automated transmission with the Buick, and we got creep torque as a byproduct of that. You know, I don't know if it was ever the intent that we needed to have this mode. Uh, if you had to explain to somebody how to drive a car, it's at low speed, you got to modulate the brake pedal to putz around the parking lot, and then somewhere around five miles per hour, you start using the other pedal. You know, if we could redesign it, like why would you why would you do that? We've been emulating that for a while in our electric vehicles and the Volt and the Spark EV. So here, when you shift it into low, um, now uh, the car does not have that creep torque. It figures out what torque it needs to hold whatever kind of hill you're on. If it's if you're on a slight uphill, it figures out you need some positive torque to hold it, or a slight downhill, some negative torque to hold you in that position. So then, as you drive it, um, you're getting you get region torque when you initially lift off it at the, the pedal at speed. And it's negative torque the entire way until you get to a stop, and then we have to do that little decision of what is it, what does the torque need to be, and we're trying to bring the vehicle to a stop. If you're in drive, it's a little bit different because in drive, we're trying to offer the customer a very familiar type of situation. So we do have the creep torque in drive, and in that case, we do do the transition like we've traditionally done, where it's negative torque, and then we have to start putting the friction brakes on to hold the vehicle, to kind of hold the, back, hold the vehicle back from the torque that would be applied in that condition. So we kind of do a combination of both, but low is all new. There's no, when you pull the paddle behind the steering wheel or if the shifter's in low and you're not pushing the brake pedal, the brakes are not applied, the friction brakes are not applied. It's all done with torque in the motor, which, means, which allows us to then capture that energy and put it back into the battery every time you slow down. So you've got four four main modes. That's right. Uh, can you just give me a quick sure. run through of all? Yeah, so we, you know, we drive it low in the shifter positions, but then behind the steering wheel, we have the region on demand paddle. So the combination of those is kind of two times two, because you're four different modes. Drive is intended to be uh, a mode that is similar to a gasoline engine vehicle. You lift off, and, and typically gasoline engine vehicle, you've got the aerodynamic losses and some engine braking that occurs. And so that's somewhere around 0.07 to 0.1 type of G level, depending what speed you do it out. But but that's a little bit of deceleration. Um, and then from there, you can shift it to low, and that's going to bring you down to maybe around 0.2 G to 0.25 G, somewhere in that threshold, which is pretty similar to some of the other vehicles that are out there, maybe the BMW i3, like we mentioned. Um, 
And then, in either drive or low, if you pull that paddle, you get even more. Uh, if you're in low and you pull the paddle, you go all the way to 0.3 Gs of pure deceleration, all with motor torque that's going to be charging the battery. Drive is, is slightly uh, less than that, but it's uh, probably around 0.25 Gs is what it is in drive when you pull the paddle, so it's pretty close, it's pretty aggressive. This, the, the biggest step is if you're in drive and you pull the paddle, it's a pretty dramatic step in deceleration. But if it's too much, you just tip the accelerator pedal a little bit to find whatever medium ground that you want. So, but, so um, you know, the nice thing about it, yeah, I haven't been out in the bolt yet, but uh, certainly in, in the I3, uh, you know, for, for urban driving, that one, the be, being able to do that single pedal mode yeah. uh, when you're in stop and go traffic is, is great. You know, yeah. just it's great. It may not be for everybody. You know, as I said, on the I3, you better like it because that's your only option on the I3. Right. Here, we're giving the customer. If you like it, use it. If not, then you know you can adjust a little bit. And again, the paddle is another option. We, I said the Volt customers, we've learned that a lot of them are using low, but I still think uh, that a lot of people are never going to shift it to low, even how much we try to inform the journalists and inform the dealers. Uh, there's some people who have been told in other cars not to use low, whether it's Honda or something like that, that that's probably their background. So that's the region on demand paddle, which is clear in its naming convention, region on demand, that that's another option that they can use. If you pull that paddle, it'll also bring the car to a complete stop. That's another thing that's different from the Volt there that uh, we've heard it on the Volt and the LR customer said, I pull this paddle and it'll slow me down, but then again at some speed I still got to transition my foot over to the brake pedal. And so this is kind of those learned lessons that, well, let's just bring it all to a complete stop. And then once you're at a stop, you can release the paddle so you don't have to hold the paddle as you're at a stop sign or stoplight the entire time. So you have like a, a brake hold uh, scenario. Well, well, again, we're doing with motor torque. You know, if, if, you haven't pushed, if you haven't pushed the brakes, the brakes are not on in this car. Right. But if you go to a steep hill and you push the brakes and you release the brake, we have hill start assist that will trap that brake pressure. Um, so that can really help hold you all the way to 20, 30% grade. Now, we, a, when the grades get real steep, we don't want to be sitting there holding that with motor torque. Uh, it's far more efficient to be on a stop on a steep hill with the brake. Sure. If an infinite clamping pressure almost there, right? So it's a, it's a better way to do it. Yeah, because otherwise, if you're using the motor, you're using up energy from the battery. You're using up energy, you're generating heat into it. I mean, if you sit on the hill long enough, it's, it's not things we want to have happen with the motor. Okay. Um, great. Well, thank you very much. Fantastic. And we're back. <laughs> the magic of editing. Yes. We do have uh, a Twitter question and a Facebook question. Um, yes. Twitter question uh, from uh, Sorter or Surter or however he know. wants to He's pronounce a, his name. A, a guy we or, or, or her. don't necessarily could, see eye to eye on the political tweetage, but uh, thank yeah. you for the question. <laughs> okay. At, at any rate, um, this uh, this listener posed the question, uh, can you take an electric car to a track day and how many laps could it be run before it needs to be recharged? Um, well, you know, um, Formula stri e. stri strictly speaking, yes, you could take it to a track day, uh, you know, but as with any other type of car, regardless of the propulsion system, uh, you know, it's it's a complicated question. It depends on the specifics of the design of that vehicle. You know what what type of cooling it's got. Like, for example, the original Tesla Roadster was absolutely not recommended for uh, track use um, because the the design of the motor in that car uh, would tend to heat up very quickly um, from hard driving of the type you would do on a track. Uh, so it, it would, it would not do very well. And in fact, um, you know, while that 
Tesla has uh, improved the cooling of their motors somewhat. Um, a Model S today still would not do very well uh, on the track, uh, as the uh, the guys from Car and Driver demonstrated last year. Um, they have a, a long term Model S uh, that they had for for a year. And in 2015, when they did their lightning lap competition at uh, Virginia International Raceway, they um, they took the uh, uh, the Model S uh, down to VIR as a support vehicle, but they did not bother to run it as part of the competition, even though, you know, the Model S and, and the Model X now are extraordinarily quick accelerating from a standing start. Uh, they are actually rather poor track vehicles. Um, in part because of their their weight, you know, they're, they're, they're very large and heavy cars, but also despite their weight, you know, compared to other cars of similar size, um, the, you know, when run hard in a sustained manner like you would on a track, both the battery and the, uh, the motors and the power electronics uh, heat up pretty quickly and you lose a lot of efficiency and a lot of power. And uh, what we can do is in the show notes, uh, we will include uh, a link to uh, the story that uh, they published last year with the video showing how poorly the Model S did on the track. Uh, so, you know, that's that's one example. You know, I mean, if you had an electric vehicle, electric powertrain that was designed for that kind of use, you know, to to have better heat dissipation, uh, then you you certainly could conceivably run it on the track. Um, you know, as, as to how many laps you could run before it needs to be recharged, like, you know, just as with, you know, a gas powered race car, you know, it depends how big the fuel tank is, um, you know, and, and how hard you run it. Um, you know, certainly the harder you run it, you know, the more the more energy you're going to draw out of the battery a lot faster. And, and it's just not going to go as far. Yeah, well, and like the the Formula E cars, they I think they bring two cars to the races mm -hmm. because it's not just like stop to recharge. It's that that thermal management is really important, too. So you. You can't just pump all that power back in. It's not. It's not liquid. You know. You gotta. You yeah. gotta let the batteries cool. You gotta let the motors cool. Um, so they swap cars. Yeah. They, <laughs> in the middle of the race. Yeah. They. You know. They, I think the the races are sixty minutes, and they run, or maybe even a little bit less than that, and they run. Um, you know, thirty minutes with one car, and rather than doing a recharge, you know, the the driver pulls in to the garage, hops out of one car, and hops into another identical car that's fully charged, and finishes the the last thirty minutes of the race with that one. But I, I do think that racing with the electric uh, powertrains is going to actually bring us to a breakthrough of some sort with battery technology and just making things more efficient and durable. And it's it's good. You know, it's another. Oh, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll absolutely help. Um, you know, we got a lot out of uh, the internal combustion engine through racing and we're still getting benefits from it. It's just, you know, we've picked all the low hanging fruit. So. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, the, the reality is most most EVs today are not are, you know, not at all optimized for track type use. Uh, so, you know, I mean, in theory, you could take any car to a track, uh, but it, it just, you know, it's not going to be a, you're not going to have a very good experience with most current EVs on the track. So is that also why we see all these new EVs? They brag about their super scorching fast zero to 60 or quarter mile times. Right. And you never see, you never see Nürburgring, Nürburgring lap times with those cars. Cause I'm, I gotta say, I'm so sick of those times too. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the, the reality is, you know, okay. Once you're under three seconds from zero to 60, you know, almost no one is going to be able to tell from the seat of the pants, the difference between 
zero to 60 in three seconds, zero to 60 in two and a half seconds or 2.4 or 2.389. You know, it's it's meaningless, you know, and it's really, really fast and 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 a, and a publication that will that I'm not going to name today, you know, did yet another clickbait article that, you know, allowed Elon Musk to go tweeting again about how fast the Model S is, you know, um, and, you know, it's it's a it's an at this point, it's an utterly meaningless number. You know, I mean, it's, it's not something that you can, you know, realistically or safely use in the real world, you know, anything under about five seconds, you know, I mean, that, that's about all, you know, about as much as you need, you know, for merging onto a freeway. Um, it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's fun to have, but you know, it's, it's one isolated data point. Um, and you know, frankly, I'd rather, I'd personally, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't go drag racing all the time. I'd rather have a car that can get through curves quickly. Um, which is something that, you know, 4,700 pound model S, you know, does not do so well. Um, so I'd, I'd rather have something smaller and lighter, like, you know, like the bolt. Yeah. Well, we just totally sound like the two old guys in the Muppet show. So, yeah. um, <laughs> I did get one other Twitter question, which is just uh mid engine Corvette question mark. And it's like, I guess probably, I don't know. I'm, I, that's another thing I've been hearing. Since if you, if you ask, that. if you ask Don Sherman from car and driver, he oh, will absolutely, absolutely convinced. He, well, he's been convinced of it for the last 25 years. So I was gonna say, he's been convinced of it since the seventies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, probably. Sure. I, I mean, it, is that even a good idea? I, I know that they've extracted about as much performance as they possibly can from the front engine rear wheel drive layout. But again, that's not like performance isn't. Yeah. I mean, the front engine rear drive Corvette, you know, is a fantastic car. Um, and, you know, for street use, you, you're going to be hard pressed to beat it. Um, however, um, you know, given that uh, Chevrolet, you know, spends a lot of money on racing at Le Mans um, and in the uh, IMSA WeatherTech series. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, they have a, a fierce rivalry with Ford. You know, Ford has committed to spending at least three more seasons uh, racing the GTs. Um, and so I would not be surprised if, you know, just as, uh, you know, Porsche this year has introduced a, a mid-engine 911 uh, RSR for racing um, that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if at uh, come June at uh, Le Mans, you know, during the, the festivities in the run up to the race that uh, Chevrolet takes the wraps off of a new mid engine Corvette that will be built in very low volumes, just like the GT um, and be primarily created primarily to homologate it for uh, racing in GTLM at Le Mans and in, in uh, or GTLM and in, in IMSA and GTE pro at, at Le Mans. So possibly. Uh, you know, well, I mean, we've seen spy photos now, you know, in the last week or two of, you know, what certainly appears to be a mid engine Corvette, um, you know, running alongside uh, some front engine, you know, uh, C7s, you know, that are probably a, a new ZR1, um, you know, during winter testing up in uh, in northern Michigan. So it's, it, you know. I guess, you know, at this point, I would be surprised if they don't make one, but just don't expect it to be the mainstream Corvette. It will probably be, like I said, you know, very low volume, maybe a few hundred units a year, just like the GT, um, you know, you know, mainly built to homologate it for racing. Yeah, well, that's a pretty safe bet. I, they can they can swing that kind of thing. 
Um, so maybe we'll all get that mid-engine Corvette. I, you know, I really wish it would be the thing like the mid-engine rotary engine thing. <laughs> the four rotor, <laughs> yeah, 1973 the four rotor. Right. There's, what is that? CERV three or whatever? Um, uh, no, that was uh, that was not one of the the CERV uh, concepts. That was it was originally called the four rotor, um, and then later, about 1974 75, they they pulled the uh, the four rotor uh, engine, the Wankel engine, out of it and put in a small block, uh, and it was renamed the Aerovet. Oh, and, Bill Mitchell hated that thing. Yeah. Um, and that one, that one actually had, uh, the original Falcon wing doors, you know, everybody talks about Tesla inventing the Falcon wing doors, the gull wing doors with a hinge in the middle of it. But in fact, if you go back and look up the Aerovet and I'll, I'll look for uh, a link to photos of it. Uh, it had the same style of, uh, gull wing doors that were hinged in the middle. Uh, so they don't stick out as far, um, on that car. Huh. I mean, well, there was there was Brooklyn and DeLorean too that had. They, I mean, they're yeah. Well, they had they had the the fixed gull wings, you know. So it was just it was a, the doors were one piece. They weren't hinged in the middle. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. The little little flappy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about that forever. So uh, <laughs> let's move on to our Facebook question. Uh, what two car brands would you like to merge to make a better super brand? Uh, Anthony asks, and he says his choice is. Uh, oh, and why? Uh, his choice is Lincoln and Mazda um, because Mazda doesn't really have a luxury division and Lincoln is too close to Ford's platinum products. I think you will find that uh, you will never divorce Lincoln from Ford because Lincoln is Ford. And, and <laughs> so, Mazda was only very recently divorced from Ford. So, yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, I don't I don't see that one happening. Um, no. Maybe Mazda and Mitsubishi. Uh, well, Mitsubishi is under uh, Nissan. That's true. They control, got right on Nissan, Nissan control now. Um, Mazda and Chrysler. Uh, um, those two. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that. You know, I mean, I love Mazda, um, but I'm not sure that. You know, the old uh, line. You know, I, I don't want to call them a turkey, but you know, the old line about you know mating two turkeys doesn't make an eagle. Um, <laughs> no, but I'm just like FCA has been very clear about wanting to merge with a small car partner. Well, they, to the y- point where they've they've killed. Well, no, what what, what 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 they want is they want somebody to to produce small cars for them. They don't want to necessarily merge with a company like Mazda um, that that is you know a small company. So they basically want um, they, they want they want they want somebody with big pockets to take them over. They want the, that's why that's why they tried so hard to merge with GM. Yeah. Oh, and there's just way too much redundancy with, with them with GM. Um, yeah. Yeah. GM would be selling against itself even with, you know, Jeep and GMC. So there's no way. Right. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, there, there was some rumor, uh, last year, you know, about FCA potentially being taken over by Samsung. Um, you know, who knows what's going to happen with FCA. Um, you know, Mazda, I think, in the long term, probably will not remain independent. Um, I suspect they will get uh, absorbed by somebody. And my guess is that it might well be a Chinese manufacturer that takes them over. Well, that's what I was just going to say about, FCA you know, what, what would point. what what might be in, what might be an interesting combination is if Geely took over Mazda. You know, so you've got, um, you know, Geely also owns Volvo. Right. You know, so you've got Volvo as kind of that premium brand. 
Um, and then, uh, and then Mazda, you know, as, um, a slightly premium mainstream brand. Well, and the two are not strangers either because under Ford, they were together, you know, that's true. Yeah. The Mazda three and the getting the band Ford back together. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And then but, they just need to buy out Ford and they, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we, this is a game we could play for, for a yeah. while. But um, um, yeah, actually, actually, that might that might not be a bad combination. You know, if Geely if Geely took over Mazda, um, because that would that would give them an entry into uh, other markets outside of China. Um, you know, with with a known brand. Uh, you know, and they you know they have the they have the pockets to you know the deep pockets to support Mazda and and keep them going and you could have some technology sharing i mean there's there's some potentially very good technology sharing in terms of powertrains and so on between mazda and and um uh, and volvo and and geely uh so i think yeah that yeah that's that's an interesting one i'll have to think about that and maybe write something longer about that well and not even necessarily just geely too like there's uh plenty of other oh yeah there's lots of chinese brands, you know. chinese domestic brands that would love to get a foothold in the west you know with I mean, a they're, with they're, a known brand trying right like there's byd there's brilliance mm-hmm. there's um uh saic and and like you know these are names that we've we've heard uh they're not here yet to to any degree uh, and they may not be, but the, the Chinese auto market is giant. It's like this giant. Oh, it's it's way for- it's way bigger than any other market now. I mean, I think they were they're on target for twenty eight million sales this year. You know, which yeah. is That's you know, at least more than us. Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, I I could see it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they have some cool stuff over there too. Like they still they. So what happens too is like uh, a lot of these, or I, I, I'll call them Western automakers, right? They they sell their older stuff into the Chinese market because it's been a burgeoning market for a while. So you know, older generation Volkswagens, like the the original Passat, the Santana. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I don't know if it's still built over there, but it was built over there for quite a long time. Yeah, I mean they they, they do still. I mean I don't I don't think they sell that one anymore, but they do still. You know, many of the the uh, the Western brands do still sell some uh, older models, older generation models in the Chinese market, you know, at the low end, you know, as, as entry level models. But, you know, they also, you know, they also sell their latest and greatest stuff. Uh, and in fact, you know, in a lot of cases, they, you know, they have stuff, uh, they have variations that are exclusive to the Chinese market, uh, particularly the long wheelbase models, because, you know, there's, there's a significant um, demand for vehicles with uh, extra rear seat legroom, you know, for, for people that uh, don't want to drive, but want to be driven, you know, so you'll, you'll find things like long wheelbase versions of BMW three series and five series and Mercedes E-Class and, and uh, even the C-Class um, that are sold nowhere else, but in China. Yeah. So at a certain point uh, we'll see some kind of Chinese deals happening and that's that'll be very interesting i think that's probably a good idea um maybe well there's i mean there's there's actually you know i I was actually at uh an automotive press association lunch in in detroit last week uh where mike dunn um was there speaking he uh recently wrote a book about uh, the chinese market published a book and he spent a lot of quite a long time uh living in china um and uh he's quite familiar with the, the market over there 
And uh, he was talking about the fact that, you know, while we don't see Chinese brands as such being sold over here, um, we we actually, you know, the Chinese have actually invested in a lot of suppliers. Uh, so a lot of the supplier base uh, are now owned by Chinese companies, um, you know, companies like Next Year which uh, was a spinoff of Delphi, which was a spinoff of GM. Next year was, was the former um, Saginaw steering, GM's former Saginaw steering division. Um, and it was last year, it was purchased by a Chinese company, um, you know, A123 batteries. Uh, and of course yeah. the, the remnants of uh, Fisker uh, were bought by Wang Xiang, uh, another Chinese uh, supplier. Saab, <laughs> uh, Saab, yeah, right. um, and, and of course, uh, you know the the Buick Envision, um, you know, is produced in China, you know, and is the first mainstream model exported to uh, to North America from China uh, for sale. Um, you know, it's produced by GM, uh, GM and SAIC in China. Yeah, uh, you know, at a certain point, we're probably all gonna gonna be considering this new brand on the market over here. That's Chinese. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's bound to happen sooner or later. It's, it's, it's a question of when, not if. Yeah. Um, I, and, you know, Un- I unless of course, you know, somebody just puts, uh, you know, imposes some, um, crazy tariffs on everything imported, but yeah. you know, can't so, imagine that happening. Well, I mean, you remember what we were talking about with, uh, things being expensive, um, <laughs> and, and the price of everything like in a global market. Um, yeah. This could be a lot of interesting domino effects for us to talk about. Uh, I don't want to get into it all right now. <laughs> yeah, we need something for next week. But uh, yeah, so speaking of next week, let's call it a night and we'll take off. Uh, let you get to the Chicago show um, that you're there until the end of the week. And then uh, we'll, we'll recap it next week. Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. All right. See you next week, everybody. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.